0: Well, I don't think Oregon football needs a transfer at wide receiver, but they might add one anyway. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. So over the weekend, Oregon hosted Gary Bryant Jr., the wide receiver from USC who's in the transfer portal, for a visit, and I don't think it's someone Oregon needs to add, but as I looked at it further, I think the possibilities greater than I, I, I indicated at one point in time. Now, Bryant is just in the midst of a situation where USC has, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen because they've got a bunch of great wide receivers, and he's a really good one. And actually, on Locked On pack 12 last year, I talked about him after spring football as a potential breakout player, but then. They added a a bunch of transfers and whatnot, and he kind of got moved down the depth chart. But he's got a lot of potential. So he was a high four-star recruit coming out of high school. He's really looked the part uh, playing at USC. But there's one reason that I think he could be somebody that they add, whereas before I didn't think it was quite as likely. I asked Mark Culkin, our Locked On USC host, about him and said, hey, where does he typically play? Because when you look at him, he's a little bit on the smaller side, not like Tez Johnson, Chris Hudson small. He's bigger than those guys, but he doesn't have the Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton, Kyler Casper, Sean Holden, Chase Coda kind of build on the outside. Cota even was a little bit of a, a tweener there. So, I asked him about that. Say he's you know he's five foot eleven. He's not five eight. He's not a Jalen Red. He's not a Seven McGee type, right? Like, can he play a little bit on the outside? And Mark told me that he played about fifty percent on the outside and fifty percent in the slot. He's a great run after the catch guy. Really, really good. But I still look at Oregon's depth chart at wide receiver and say, I don't know if it's the place where he's going to be able to maximize his touches, right? Like from his standpoint, like if I were him, I would say this is not the room I want to come into because if he's half from the slot and half outside, well, Oregon has a slot receiver who we know is good, Chris Hudson, and we brought in a slot receiver via the transfer portal as well to compliment or challenge him or back him up in Tez Johnson. Would they bring in another guy who could get snaps at the slot position? Now maybe, right? Maybe if Will Stein is going to make tweaks to personnel and we won't go, you know, as heavy with twelve personnel and five wide, and he wants to put four receivers on the field, meaning instead of one back and and two tight ends, and that make up three of the five players who are lined up in in the empty set with Bo Nix and the shotgun. Maybe he wants to have more receivers who he can roll out like that. I could see that as a possibility. But the biggest opportunity right now in this offense at the wide receiver position to play is on the outside. Because I think Hudson and Johnson, in an order that I don't think we know at this point in time, it's kind of the most intriguing part of you know the, the spring position battle for the wide receivers, which slot receiver is going to end up getting the starting job. Who's going to be the first guy there? I still think it'll be Hudson, but we'll just see Johnson a fair amount but I thought Hudson did a lot of really good things last year. He only really had one drop against Cal. Yeah, he struggled to stay on his feet a couple times, but he made a lot of good plays. He's also a really, really good blocker, which I value tremendously, especially when you have a guy like Bucky Irving, who does have a tendency, because he's very good at it, to go with the outside cutback, right? It's how he somewhat reminds us of LeMichael James, the way he will go inside and just go, nope, sharp cut, sharp cut, outside you got to have receivers blocking for that tight ends as well, but Hudson is definitely good in uh, that regard. So he thrives in the slot, but he can play outside. So maybe, right? Maybe because the number two X and Z receivers in the offense, they're there. There could be another starting role, like I was mentioning, if they see a fourth receiver really as a starter rather than a backup or rotational player. If that's what Will Stein is going to bring to the table, then maybe there is an opportunity for Gary Bryant to be on the field. But I can't imagine the offense will change that much. I think there will be little tweaks, but I don't think there's going to be a radical shift in philosophy and play calling. Um, obviously, there will be little differences with Stein at the helm, but I don't think he's coming in to completely retool the offense. Landing is going to say, we have these plays, we like them it worked for us last year as part of our philosophy. It's part of what we want to do as as a program here. And, you know, he'll work within that framework and then also have some creative freedom as well. But before I get into the wide receivers further, I have a question to pose to all of you. And now be honest in the YouTube comments, if you could actually name this, I'm going to give you five seconds to think about it. It's not very much time, but you know what? We're in the podcasting space. I'm trying to keep your attention, keep you interested. I can't give you more than five seconds of dead air to answer a question, or uh, I would be getting a very, shall we say, less than polite phone call from my boss, who's amazing, by the way. Zach, host of Locked On Auburn. Ready? You're gonna. I'm gonna read the question, and then you're gonna have five seconds. Okay. Here we go. Who was the last Oregon wide receiver to eclipse 1,000 yards for a season? Time's up. The answer is Dylan Mitchell, 2018. It's pretty wild to think about that we haven't had that unless you think about the talent Oregon has had at wide receiver and quarterback and there hasn't been that right confluence of events. And in 2018, you had a high-level quarterback in Justin Herbert. You had a great receiver in Dylan Mitchell. And you didn't have a ton of talent around him as well. I did find that tidbit to be interesting. And the other thing, too, is you know, Oregon's passing offense took a massive jump forward in terms of explosiveness, downfield shots, incorporating wide receivers. All that took a step forward. But I still think there's another gear. I still think there's another gear for the Ducks. And, you know, even in 2018, Dylan Mitchell had 1,000 yards. No other wide receiver hit 500 yards. I I wonder if with the talent Oregon's got in their room and the thinning out somewhat of the tight end position via the transfer portal, with Montevallo and McCormick gone, I really wonder if you won't have two of your better individual receiving seasons that we've seen recently for the Ducks, because there just haven't been that many years where that's been the case. You know, when Mario Cristobal was at the helm, didn't get the ball to wide receivers as much. And then you go, you know, for the last uh, a couple of years, right? Troy Franklin came close kind of last year, but he didn't even hit 900 yards. He was just short of that mark. So I, I wonder, I wonder if that's something we'll see from the wide receivers this year. Now, the wide receiver room has got a decent amount of names. Again, not as many as I thought, which is why I'm giving more credence to the idea that they could add Gary Bryant Jr. But we'll go through the names, we'll go through where they stand, and I will lay out my prediction for who's going to start at which spot after I tell you about FanDuel, because it's America's number one sportsbook. Weekend number one of March Madness is in the books. Weekend two is around the corner, so the tournament's heating up, and it's the perfect time to download FanDuel. New customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That bonus bet's back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get a no-sweat first bet. It's up to $1,000 in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash locked on. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on to learn more. You can also combine your bets for a bigger payout if you go with the same game parlay. Hit it up. They've got everything you need. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. So, all the names in the receiver room. As I was compiling this list, I felt like one was missing, and indeed one was. But it's still not as deep as you'd think, and and I think it depends. I'm really interested to see what happens with Kyler Casper here. I, I really am. But every wide receiver in the room going into spring practice, Chris Hudson, Trayshawn Holden, who's wearing number five, Troy Franklin, Justice Lowe, like Oswego product, Tez Johnson, who's rocking number 15, Kyler Casper, Ashton Cozart, Josh Delgado, Darian Anderson, Von Reims. Last two guys are special teamers, right? So, really, you got eight wide receivers in there who either have contributed or have shown real potential to contribute. Now, the guy that's missing from that group on the spring football roster at the moment is Jurion Dickey, who's not going to enroll until the fall. So, he is a guy who could still very much play in year one because he has got such a high floor, high ceiling too. I mean, he is a tremendous wide receiver prospect. I'm stoked to see what he could bring to the table. But when you look at those guys and, and project where they might be starting and and also how many guys are going to get reps, I, I found it to be a really interesting exercise to go through because last year... You lost uh, Isaiah Bravard and Isaiah Crocker, who, who didn't really play. But you lost Chase Cota, and you lost Dante Thornton. Now, as far as wide receivers go, those were your third and fourth most productive wide receivers. Not pass catchers, right? Because running backs had receptions, tight ends had receptions, wide receivers. So you know that in addition to Troy Franklin and Chris Hudson, who were the two leading receivers overall for, for the Ducks, regardless of position last year— You're going to need at least two other guys to be pretty regular contributors, probably three. Because in 2022, you had five wide receivers who made notable contributions on a semi-consistent level throughout the course of the year, who were making plays in conference games, who had individual standout performances, Troy Franklin, Chase Cota, Chris Hudson, Dante Thornton, and then seven McGee until he decided to transfer. And then they kind of morphed Hudson into that gadget guy sort of role. But still, you're looking at four or five guys, call it four and a half, that are going to be regular contributors just at the wide receiver position. And I know Franklin is, and I know Chris Hudson is, although I I, I do wonder about the Tez Johnson thing. So I know Franklin's going to be a major contributor. I know Treshawn Holden will be. Let's say we get, you know, kind of half of a production each from Tez Johnson and Chris Hudson, that still leaves another slot. So I think going across, right, you have an X receiver, you have a Z receiver, right? Franklin plays X and last year Chase Cota was the Z. So, and Dante Thornton was the Z receiver as well. X receiver, Z receiver, slot receiver, right? Primary positions. Maybe there's a fourth in there. Maybe there's a fourth one, depending on what Will Stein does. Interesting thing to note. But I think going across, you'll have Troy Franklin starting at X. He's your number one receiver. We all understand that he's one of the best in the conference. He was second-team All-Pac-12 last year. He could be first-team All-Pac-12 this year. I think he's going to be backed up by Kyler Casper, who did not play a lot last year, really at all, I think he only made a couple catches. I don't know that they were in, uh, you know, key situations or big games. I love his upside. Absolutely love it. And I think he could be the number two X to Troy Franklin. I think Treshawn Holden is going to start at Z. I think he'll get backed up by Jerion Dickey. And then in the slot, you'll have Tez Johnson and Chris Hudson splitting time. That's what I imagine will happen. But... We'll see how it plays out over the course of spring football. But that's my prediction there. Franklin, Holden, and I think Hudson are your starting three, and then backed up by guys who might need to step in because of injury or, you know, for a snap because a piece of you know equipment is broken or they're tired on a player or whatever. Like gotta have all these guys game ready at any point in time. And I think Kyler Casper, I think you know, one of the other slot guys. And I think Jerry on Dickey can all be there, and and Ashton Kozart, you know m- maybe he pops, but Dickey is a high floor, high ceiling kind of guy. I just even though he's going to be a late arrival, I think he's going to fit in pretty seamlessly there. As long as he can pick up the offense quickly, he, he he should see the field, and I'm excited to see what he can do. Especially that first game against Portland State, man he could he could really really show out. Um, all right, let's get to our daily Blazer Duck question, guys. Just Gold standard. The gold standard for questions. Sends in more than anybody else, and I love it. If you want to be part of the mailbag, YouTube comments or Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at LockedOnDucks mentions and DMs wide open. And I got to tell you, I'm in lockstep with my guy Blazer Duck here. Spencer, I get really frustrated with Oregon's corners playing 10 to 12 yards off wide receivers on the line of scrimmage. Yeah, me too. It's easy for the offense to convert a quick hitch route, slant route, or a pass to the flat for an easy three or more yard gain that usually turn into bigger gains. Is it Tosh Lupoy's defensive philosophy to play a lot of soft coverage, or is it the personnel that is dictating playing soft coverage? I would love to see Oregon playing man-to-man coverage and jam the wide receivers on the line of scrimmage. With Oregon adding new personnel, do you think Oregon does more of this? Thanks, Spencer. So I think there is a very real possibility that we see more of this because it's more what Dan Lanning played at Georgia. There was a hefty amount of press man there, but look at the way they recruited and the players they brought in. And I, I do wonder if the amount of soft zone we saw from the Oregon defense last year wasn't a result of Dan Lanning and Tosh Lupoy not fully trusting their personnel in certain instances. And one thing that we really saw, I think with the safeties more than than with the corners, is Oregon really lacked high-end speed at the back end of the secondary. Brian Addison had it. I don't know if he's the twitchiest athlete, but he's certainly an explosive one, which are two different things. But when you look at the other safeties, Steve Stevens, Jamal Hill, Bennett Williams, not enough speed there on the back end. So the Oregon coaching staff, I think, might have felt... They needed to protect those guys a little bit by playing soft zone, right? And your corners are working in conjunction with your safeties. And you can only really trust your corners to play press man if you know you're going to have the necessary safety help over the top if you get beat off the line of scrimmage. But if you don't trust your safety to make those sorts of plays, you can't do that. If you don't have a real roamer on the back end, which Oregon was badly missing in 2022 in the secondary, then you can't run as much of that as you like. Because I'm with you, right? I think of the Washington game specifically, how many times were we going to just let them play pitch and catch by sitting 8 to 10 yards off the line of scrimmage? Like, it, it's nuts. And the other reason it drives me nuts is Oregon goes out and recruits at a high level. And they get they get these guys who are high-caliber athletes in college football. What is the point of doing that if you're just going to have them sit in off coverage, right? Like, that's what... That, that, that's what uh, G5 schools have to do against Power 5 schools, unless you have a sauce gardener at Cincinnati. You you, you sit in soft zone. I mean, it, it drives me insane. It drives me absolutely insane. I, I think you just disrupt a defense, or an offense so much more on the outside when you get up in wide receivers' grills. Don't give them a bunch of free releases. Now, you can't do it every time, right? I'm not saying to never run a zone, you know, depending on the coverage and the situation, because if you go press man on 80% of your plays, well, then you're just going to get hit with a bunch of rub routes, right? And that's no good either. And and so there's a a push and pull there. But I wonder if that doesn't change this year when they've been able to bring in more of their players, they brought in new safeties. And I wonder if it wasn't a personnel problem, because I would... The the next time I see a 3rd and 12 get converted where the corner is starting 8 yards off and backpedaling immediately, I I just... I'm going to be throwing stuff at my wall if I see that uh, again this year. So I I too am am much more of a man-to-man kind of guy. Um, And so I I, I hope that changes. I hope that changes. I hope it was a personnel thing and they now feel with Evan Williams, with Tysheem Johnson, they feel like they have... Enough speed on the back end to be able to be a little bit more aggressive with with the play calls that they give to their corners. So great question as always, Blazer Duck. My man just keeps him coming every time. I think, oh, okay, I won't see him for what? No, he just he just keeps rolling. And you can all ask questions, and I will always, always, always answer them here on the show because I appreciate you all so very, very much. Last one about Oregon basketball today. This is from <laughs> great name skirt mayo 1563 i don't know how you come up with this stuff it might be randomly generated but all right skirt mayo i got you the question goes as follows hey spencer question on men's basketball since 2016 the men's record has gotten slowly worse year by year do you think this has anything to do with Dana Altman and his staff? Or is Dana Altman suffering from the consequences of success? Let me know your thoughts. Well, he has lost several assistants over the years. And, and I think it's fair to speculate about you, you know how, how well they've been able to manage that. But I also like the hires they've made since then. And you, you know every great coach, and we've talked about this more in, in the football aspect is going to have to deal with coaching turnover when you have success, right? I don't think assistant coaches were leaving. In fact, I know they were not because I look at the jobs they were taking. They weren't leaving Dana Altman because they were tired of, you know, being in Oregon and and tired of winning. No, it's because they were going to pursue head coaching opportunities. But at the end of the day, Dana is the most important guy. And this goes back to, you know, what I've talked about with Lanning too. People get frustrated that coaches go on the move, that they – take new jobs and that they're not sticking around. And it's like, yeah, this is why the head coach is paid the most. This is why he's the most visible person. It's why he's the most important hire you make because you're going to have assistants come and go. But the head guy who's there is going to determine how successful you will be at the end of the day. So I think that there's, there are a couple of elements to the records kind of going down. First of all, that Peyton Pritchard led team when he was just killing it, you know, hit that shot up in Seattle against Washington. Okay, that team was at least going to the Sweet 16. COVID year, they went to the Sweet 16. And yeah, there have been back to back missed NCAA tournaments. I'm disappointed about that as well. I'm not supremely worried yet. I I have somewhat of a level concern about where Dane is going, but you also have to remember, look at the floor that he's established as a coach. Okay, the floor is a 20-win season. Would you like to have gotten there before the regular season ended? Yes, of course. But Dane Altman is winning 20 games year after year after year after year. That That's the norm, right? That's a disappointing year he's got 20 wins. So I think there is an element of The downside of success is you reset the standards. And Oregon basketball doesn't have a rich history, right? I mean, you could argue Oregon football in the 90s was much better than Oregon basketball, I'm pretty sure. There were some good teams here and there. But overall, Oregon athletics built somewhat of a reputation because of Mike Bilotti in football. Far more than they did in basketball. And they've had some great individual runs. But I think Dana Altman is work to reset our expectations. And I'm glad he's done that. And I think it's a fair place to be in where you say, no, winning 20 games, getting the NIT, that's not a successful season. But you also can't view it as a calamitous season, right? What Cal did this year, that that's calamitous. Going under 500 with the resources that Oregon's got and the reputation Dana's built, that would be a disastrous, god-awful, very, very bad, no-good situation. But Twenty wins again, missing the tournament. Like if that's the lowest you can go, I'm going to give you some benefit of the doubt there that you're going to be able to get it back. And yeah, you, you could lose an assistant who's you know more impactful on, on on the one hand than you know another assistant here, but I, I don't think that's been what has has caused them to not get back to the tournament the last couple of years. I think injuries have been a part of it. I, I think some disappointing play from certain players and, and not living up to, to expectations, that's been a part of it as well. And I think the real test for them will will, will come next year too. So I hope that answers your question, but I, I think that, first of all, I'm, I'm excited to continue to watch them in, in the NIT, not like, you know, over the moon, but I like watching them play. And when they play well, I like watching them play well. And I like getting, you know, it, it's like, If Oregon football played several bowl games, you know, that's what the NIT essentially is here. You you, you have several bowl games. You get a nice glimpse into the future. You see what the potential is. A lot lot of interesting things right now. And, And I'm excited to see how they finish out. And by the way, your belief in Dana Altman should still be there at this point in time, at least at some level, because there they are in the NIT, not where they wanted to be, and they still got guys playing their butts off and going out there to win games. You love to see it. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day and go Ducks.